This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's episode 450. It's Friday, March 3rd, 2017. And this week we have Dr. Richie Shoemaker joining us from Pocomoke, Maryland. Uh, before we get started, we always like to thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Let's turn it over to Cliff for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to czalotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. John Lapotere, Indoor Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, for the first correct answer to last week's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, March 3rd, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. Name the term defined as any of a class of nitrogenous organic compounds that consist of large molecules composed of one or more long chains of amino acids and are essential part of all living organisms, especially as structural components of body tissues such as muscle, hair, collagen, etc., and as enzymes and antibodies. Back to you, Joe. Ooh, it was a wordy one, Cliff. Thank you. Today's guest is Dr. Richie Shoemaker. He has been involved in the field of medical evaluation and treatment of patients sickened by the exposure to the interior environment of water-damaged buildings for over 18 years. He has diagnosed and treated over 7,000 patients, written and published multiple academic papers in peer-reviewed literature, as well as three books, the last was published in 2014, state-of-the-art answers to 500 mold questions, and that would be, I think, uh, version two. He lectures widely in the U.S. and internationally. Since his medical retirement in January of 2013, he has continued research into the basic genomics and brain inflammation effects of exposure. And uh, his website is survivingmold.com. He has trained physicians to certify his treatment protocols. We last spoke, 
in January of 2015, Dr. Shoemaker's been a regular here on IAQ Radio. We try and get him in at least every couple of years to talk about how things are coming along. Hello, Dr. Shoemaker. Do we have you on the line? Well, good afternoon and welcome from chilly but sunny Pocomoke, Maryland. Uh, we're in snowy western Pennsylvania today. <laughs> Finally, we've got some snow. It's been a <laughs> unbelievably warm February here, but March will get a little snow. All right, well, let's, let's get started here. Um, you know, the last time we had you on the show, we were talking about... Um, the the neuroquant and adding the neuroquant to um, to the the protocol I guess and helping to look at how um, how these issues of inflammation may be affecting the brain and and I'm I'm curious first of all before we go too far how many docs do you now have using the protocol we have about twenty five that are fully certified. Uh, and their names are available from the Surviving Mold site. We have about 100 that are in various stages of preparation. The certification process is a five-step process. There's a fairly significant test. There are a couple essays that need to be written. There are uh, review of literature. There is practice analysis, and then there's an oral exam. So it's, it, it's not for everybody. But when we look at physicians that contact the site, either from, from the physician section or, or independently, saying they're, they're having a problem with this, and what do we do with this, and what do we do with that, uh, we, we usually will put their email contact into an Excel spreadsheet. And we've got probably pushing on 1,100 people. And last night I thought it was 1,000. It's just a little bit more than that. Uh, so I, I, I count them as using the protocol not knowing too much more about it than that, uh, but the certification folks that we have now are answering our number one question on surviving mold, which is, how do I find a doctor who can treat me? Joe, I've got a follow-up, if, if I might. Uh, Richie, Richie uh, or Dr. Schumacher, thanks for, for joining us. My follow-up question is, you know, in, in, as part of this examination process, you know, at the end, you said that there's this oral exam. Do you do this personally, or do you yes. have a group of peers or whatever that? No, uh, do it? so so far I, I, I'm the only one uh, okay. doing the the certifying. We are okay. in the reasonable question. We're in the process of developing a society of physicians uh, involved, and it'll be like a like a, a college, I guess. That uh, it's it's not a formal board, but there will be a a group of examiners. So we, we want to try to make things uniform in terms of how this, how this de is delivered, but the demand is starting to get more than, frankly, that I can do by myself. Okay, thank you, Joe. Back to you. Yeah, I'd like to ask, uh, as far as, I was looking at a document. In fact, I sent it out with the show announcement. It was called Medically Sound Investigation and Remediation of Water Damaged Buildings in Cases of Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And... Within that document, you talk a little bit about the background of, of Sears and water-damaged buildings and the medical effects and, and so on. And um, as a part of that discussion, you talk about what you think causes these issues within people. I wonder if you could tell people, you know, there's always been this focus on mycotoxins and mold, and and it seems to me like we're just not so sure what exactly it is. It's that soup of biological contamination, but I'd rather you tell listeners. Well, I, I think it makes sense 
to want to know one cause or two causes or three causes. The problem is that when you look at that document, which was put forth in October 2015, Keith Bernstein's the lead author, uh, you will see Table 2 lists 32 different elements known to set off the kinds of inflammatory responses that we can measure uh, in people uh, who are sick and after being in a water-damaged building. And the difficulty is if, if we have multiple entities that can set off inflammation, uh, and possibly multiple members of that list of possible causes are in a given building. How can we assign one to be to be the cause? Uh, when I first got started uh, way back in the in the day, most literature looked at fungi and specifically mycotoxins, and that, that was that was the dogma for a long time. It certainly was uh, a, a lot of fairly vicious battle in, in courtrooms, uh, and this idea of specific causation that if you don't show a given mycotoxin, you can't show an illness was uh, carrying sway in court cases in, in the early 2000s. Uh, that kind of disappeared when more knowledge uh, appeared, but it's interesting to say uh, from the 2009 World Health Organization report that there is no specific causation. Uh, what we now know based on genomics, and I sure hope we talk about genomics today, that when we look at the genes that are reported in peer-reviewed literature to be activated or suppressed by mycotoxins, and then when we look for those gene activations with genomics, which we can do, uh, we don't find very much at all. And we have validated the, the, uh, the genomics. It's an FDA-cleared machine made by Illumina. Uh, and we look at 500 million reads on, on, a, on a given given individual just for for one one run, uh, and if we have people that are exposed to water damaged buildings, what we find is an entirely different mechanism. And my concern is that if mycotoxins are having a role in causation of illness, uh, it looks like it's about one percent of the total burden. Is carried by mycotoxins, and you know this is the this is the future of, of of research of you know if we focus on mycotoxins and it's the wrong thing to focus on, people spend a lot of money on testing for mycotoxins. Um, it it may be that we're better off looking at some other components, some of the members of that 32 uh, sources of, of illness. And when we talk a little bit about ribotoxins. Uh, today, that might be a new term, and, and, and Cliff, you're going to hear that a lot of this one. Um, but ribotoxins are more coming from actinomycete species than anything else. So it's possible that when we get uh, <clears throat> better data on isolation of actinomycetes, uh, that we'll know more. I think David Lark has been one of your guests before, hasn't he? Uh, yes. David has got a new venture down in San Antonio. Uh, I think it's called Envirobiologics, and they will be focusing on bringing actinomycetes testing uh, together with endotoxin to the armamentarium. You know, we've been focusing so much on looking for fungal species as markers for activity of water and water saturation, and, and that, that certainly does hold up pretty nicely with Hurts Me Too testing. But if if I can speculate, I think we're going to find that the bulk of the sources of CRS uh, 
are coming from non-fungal members. That's my prediction that the data will show over the next year or so. Hmm. So the, the, it's ribo. Give me that word term one more time and then and explain to the listeners a little more about what that is. Cliff's question was an wonderful lead-up to the new mechanisms that we have been able to show in in, in people, not not just with, with exposure to water-damaged buildings being the source of their problem, but other illnesses as well. There are structures, and, and if you remember your high school biology, uh, in the cytoplasm of, a, of every cell, there are structures that make proteins called ribosomes. And there are two different parts of the ribosome, a top and a bottom, and in between the top and the bottom, there is a collection of structures that have funny names. The sarsen, ricin loop is one of those names, and this is intimately involved in elongation of amino acids to make a protein. And if we look at what happens, there are small molecules coming from the environment. We know that mycotoxins are a source here. We know that dinoflagellate toxins are a source here. We know that bacterial endotoxins are a source here. The actinomyces are very much involved. It is a fascinating issue that just about every species of, of organisms that make extracellular products makes a compound that disrupts protein elongation as part of the mechanism of injury. And here really is, is a warfare situation. Every organism that there is has got ribosomes, whether you're a dinoflagellate or an amoeba or a, a walnut tree or a Great Dane dog or a person, you've got ribosomes. And the ribosomes that, that uh, multicelled organisms have, eukaryotes is the buzzword, are more similar to some of the ribosomes of the most ancient species called archaea, bacteria are a little different than, than both of those. But it's fascinating that here's a structure that elongates a protein, almost like a ratchet. Put one amino acid on, ratchet along to the next site, put another amino acid on. That's how you make a protein. These structures are the same throughout organisms. They're three billion years old. And in all these issues about uh, new illnesses and, oh, building problems and, and moisture and all this stuff, is just reproducing an evolutionarily stable mechanism of disease causation. It is incredible. Now, when, when these people come in, and that, that, that's, that's the point of that genomics paper in Medical Research Archives from last year, Volume 4, Issue 7, that's the point, is that we have looked at abnormalities of people that are then treated, and before and after genomics shows correction. And, and Cliff, you're good with numbers. How big is the number 10 to the 45th power? The gene activation for these ribosomal genes is 10 to the 45th times higher in sick people than it is after you treat them. And after you treat them, it goes back to equal controls. It's just incredible. And how, how is this measured? Well, genomics measures uh, mRNA, measures uh, what's called RNA-seq. Uh, and it's, it's a spinoff of the Human Genome Project 
that looked at genes. This is looking at gene activation. Uh, so the, the DNA is the, the gene side, the RNA is the activation side? Is that too simplistic? Or? No, that, that works pretty well, and, and, and it won't take you too much longer to figure out that there's more than one kind of RNA, though. The messenger RNA is taking a message from the nucleus. It's supposed to be a reverse copy of a gene that's activated. And if it can get out of the nucleus, because there are aligning microRNAs that protect the nucleus from exit of mRNA, as a way of controlling mRNA. If mRNA gets to the ribosome, there is ribosomal RNA that's involved with protein assembly. And if that's not complicated enough, there are additional RNAs in most of the gene pool that was called junk DNA back in 2002 and 2003. Uh, about 98% about of DNA was called junk, and half of that is what we call long non-coding RNA. These long non-coding RNAs are regulatory as well. So like microRNA, guarding against mRNA leaving the nucleus to get and do its job with protein assembly, the long non-coding RNAs are regulatory. And we might know more about the Marianas Trench than, than long non-coding RNAs, but so far it looks like these compounds exert a layer of regulation on top of a second layer of regulation of DNA transcription. Hmm. Tightly, tightly controlled. You've got more levels of regulation than you do in the end than you've gotten in the EPA. My goodness. <laughs> it's, it's complicated, believe me, and what I'm telling you is, is what we know, at least what I know now, and, and maybe tomorrow there'll be two more papers, so I wouldn't be surprised that will expand what we know about additional kinds of RNA. But this is a dynamic situation that lets the organism respond literally within seconds to environmental stimuli. And, you know, the, the body is constantly telling its own DNA, I need this, I need that, I got too much of this, I got too much of that. But this turning on and turning off of genes, if you take that one step further, creates a situation of what is a normal person. A normal person is varying their DNA. So when you look at it on time zero, compare it to time one, will a normal person have irregular gene activation? Yes, indeed. So it gets to be an enormous statistical burden trying to do any kind of research studies. And that's the reason we used the, <clears throat> the methods of having a patient be their own control. Hmm. So one of the things you're looking at with respect to, um, I don't know if it reg it's tough to use, I don't want to use the wrong term, but you're looking at VIP, um, vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, and using that to help correct chronic inflammatory response. Um, and then part of this paper was, was looking at that and how the, 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 that is affecting, or how it's, ah, my, it's tough to, tough to explain for let, me. Let, let, me, let me try Go ahead. take a crack uh, at it. Go ahead. I first used VIP in 2008. I don't think anybody else had, had ever used that on, on, on patients uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, it, is a, it is a peptide. It's a regulatory peptide that's allowed to be compounded 
by the FDA. And so it's it's not a drug that sh that that is uh, sold by prescription that might be made by a, a big pharma manufacturer. It's by prescription for a compounding pharmacy. But we found early on that VIP made people feel better, gave them a lot of more energy and less respiratory problems, uh, fixed a lot of restricted lung disease, and found out it corrected some of the inflammation chemicals, transforming growth factor beta-1 or TGF-beta-1 is a huge player. Then we found out TGF-beta-1 also has tremendous amount of genomic effects. So the link here is exposure to something in the environment that can get into the body and get into the cells that turns on DNA or turns off DNA that will create inflammation that also can turn on and turn off DNA. So it's a dual factorial program. And we then found out that there can be injury to specific structures, not just protein elongation, but mitochondria can be injured as well. VIP comes along and does its good things by correcting ribosomal injury from gene activation. And boy, and, and Joe, honestly, I completely admit that I did not know that all of the genes for mitochondria, and they've got their own genome, are replicated inside our own DNA. And it is regulation of mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA that determines the fate of glucose metabolism and energy production. You're going to hear a lot of people talking about mitochondrial stress syndromes and this, that, and the other. They're all under control of nuclear DNA. And if you don't figure in what is making nuclear DNA go wrong, you'll never get mitochondria right. So there's a lot of evolution in thinking here. But it turns out that VIP turns on production of a transcription agent. This is, this is a fellow that tells DNA to get to work and tells genes to get, get, going, get going. This one is called Icarus. There's about five of these. And Icarus, in turn, turns on production of the receptor for VIP. So VIP has to work on a receptor on a cell to do all the good things it does with DNA, but the receptor levels are so low in people with these illnesses that functionally they act like they don't have VIP even if they do have some that we can measure floating around the bloodstream. But the missing piece on all of this is when you correct protein production and correct energy production, what happens in cells that are injured in the brain is that they regrow. And that's that's new. Brandon. In your experience, in, um, in your paper, you just did work with that, with, with using VIP, and you looked at people using NeuroQuant as well um, to see if those corrections appeared to be occurring. But before I get there, what... What is VIP used for? What other types of... I, I thought I saw um, pulmonary hypertension. For sure. It is a gorgeous drug, and I'll just speak with personal experience about pulmonary hypertension. This particular illness is quite commonly seen in, in people exposed to water-damaged buildings, and you can measure pulmonary artery pressure by doing what's called an echocardiogram. There's a nomogram you can see just 
how much of flow there's going we've got going the wrong way across one valve in the heart called the tricuspid valve. And you square that number and multiply it by four and add right atrial pressure. You can calculate without doing a heart cath pulmonary artery pressure. And this is in fact was one of our entry criteria back in two thousand thirteen. I think we talked about the VIP paper, the first one, where it fixed proteomics and inflammation uh, abnormalities, but it, what it really does is improve exercise tolerance. VIP has been used to fix a whole series of, of illnesses. Mario Delgado and has, has probably written more than anybody. Uh, Anna Gania is one of his uh, collaborators in research. She's down at Temple. Mario's over in Spain. But just a fantastic literature on immune benefits of this compound. Now that we know that it fixes ribotoxins' effects on the SARS and ricin loop, we can look at more molecular bases that should lead to other applications of other diseases. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're getting there as quick as we can. We have looked at traumatic uh, brain injury. We've looked at PTSD. Uh, we've presented at two conferences on Lyme disease, and you know the the fantastic changes in DNA activation that John Alcott and his peers down at, uh, at at Hopkins came up with in February of 2016. They showed in acute Lyme that there was a big change in genes, different from what you have for our mold patients, so to speak. But unfortunately, antibiotics did not fix that gene activation in Lyme patients. And at the ILADS conference in November, I presented information showing that, that our protocols, including, including VIP, do fix those gene abnormalities. So I don't know how many genes uh, and how many transcription factors VIP is going to fix, but it's, it's fixed in a lot. But you know, the, the whole issue is that when we did a, a literature search for the um, paper of correcting atrophic nuclei, that are multiple. We, we can find papers saying modality X can help hippocampus a little bit and modality Y might help putamen or, or pallidum, but nobody had ever published fixing simultaneously multiple nuclear atrophy. And in a way, this whole idea that brain injury being permanent, I don't think that's going to hold up. Certainly our paper shows in, in a pilot study, it's small and we're doing validation right now. We can actually fix ribosomes, fix mitochondria in brain tissue and give people their brains back. But it wasn't, wasn't everybody that, that responded like that, was it? What, what oh, percent? no, no, no. If, if, a, if a good result fixing a hippocampus is 7%, and then that, that would be called a good result because usually hippocampus is a marker for what doesn't improve. Okay. We got 62%. But that's limited to six months' time. And it's limited to lower doses of what we can use for VIP. And, you know, this, this, this was a, a shot in the dark. It was a hypothesis. Uh, and now that we have confirmation, we'll be, be honing in a lot more carefully on this. For example, in this small study, we couldn't even control for activity of the APOE4 gene that's supposed to be the transcription factor that turns on a lot of the damage that leads to Alzheimer's. And you hear people getting their APOE4 genes measured. If you measure the gene, does that translate into the gene being inactive? No. 
But if we look at activity of the gene, of the nuclear transcription factor, we can tell it's active by the genes that are also are turned on. And we didn't have a way to control for that, but we're working on that now. Now, you know, I'm sure some people were kind of, this has gone right over their heads, and I do want, I'm getting some text too, I want people to know. We're going to talk about in the second half a little more how the how this topic relates directly to what we do as indoor environmental professionals, remediation professionals. So hang in there with me. We also want to let people know that um, we're close to halftime, but I'm having a little difficulty with playing the halftime uh, half clip. It's not going to work, so we're just going to go straight through. Um, I want you, first though, before we get into the, the investigation and remediation side of things. I want you to tell listeners a little bit more about what other types of, uh, are, are you working on any other new types of uh, of treatment for people, or is it is the VIP right now kind of the, the main thing you're looking at? We are looking very carefully at three different main problems. The first is interstitial lung disease. And when you hear about people with interstitial lung disease, it used to be thought it was hypersensitivity pneumonitis or a number of fungi that are involved in there. Specifically, we are looking at fairly unique genomic profiles on a very small sample. Uh, we'll be working with uh, a pulmonary lab and uh, one of the major universities very, very shortly. We think that we can control TGF-beta-1 and all of its downstream genes that it turns on we can turn those off, we should be able to see some reversal of interstitial disease. Secondly, we're looking at chronic pain. Chronic pain has been thought to be a societal disaster. Uh, you heard about it the other night in, in, in President Trump's address to the nation with cost to the human life and, and expenses to society. Do we really know what causes chronic pain? Well, there's a very curious, and again, it's a small study, presentation of abnormalities of specific markers on specific lymphocytes that sort out to separate those with chronic pain compared to those that don't. And then what people had done in Norway was to give a drug to some people with chronic fatigue and chronic pain they removed these lymphocytes. They didn't do the CD markers that we had done, but just by nonspecifically removing a number of these markers, the chronic pain went away. And the question comes, is there an immunologic mechanism for chronic pain? The last thing, and this is a long-winded answer, the last thing we're doing is we're looking at the body's brown fat activity. Now, if you're like me and you would like to lose 50 pounds or maybe somebody else only wants to lose 20, the question comes, well, can't you just turn on the kind of fat that directly oxidizes fatty acids and burns fat directly for fuel? Wouldn't that be nice? Because we get 9.3 calories per gram from fat and 3.4 calories per gram from sugar. Wouldn't it be nice if we could unlock some of all this stored energy? And we have some initial uh, evidence that we found a compound that is, again, over-the-counter. It's not even a, a drug that you need a prescription for that turns on brown fat activity. We think that this will be an end to uh, obesity in those with leptin resistance. That's the problem that you get from water damage buildings. 
uh, and other kinds of, of issues with injury to a hormone called MSH, and that's maybe getting too detailed. But the issue is that if we unlocked direct fat burning, what would that do to weight? What would that do in people with type 2 diabetes? What would that do to any number of things? And it looks like this compound is safe. So far, it looks effective. But when we publish that one, I, I can guarantee you that I will not be 50 pounds heavier than what I want to be right now. <laughs> Let me ask this. It's a little off the topic, but um, I'm curious. Are you looking at all of like the microbiome of the intestines? I saw an article recently on the Science Digest that they're, they're linking some of the microbiome possibly linking some of the microbiome to things like Alzheimer's. We see it with a lot of, you know, a lot of issues. And you mentioned weight gain. I, I think, um, you know, the, the mix of, of biological uh, of bacteria and so on in our intestines has been uh, looked at with respect to weight gain. Do you look at that at all? With respect, and then, you know, how is that affected by living in a water-damaged building? Does that change the microbiome of your intestines? Every time I hear microbiome, and there's a hot area of research, a lot of people are talking about it, I just wonder how many of the hundreds of thousands of different species of bacteria people can, can look at simultaneously. Jeremy Nicholson was looking at urinary compounds that were markers for bacteria in the gut, and they were affected by water-damaged buildings. They were affected by cholesterol, of all things. They were affected by many of the modalities. I don't think anybody has a clue on how to control for bacterial interaction. Uh, and heaven forbid someone should throw in some fungi in that as well. Your question's a good one. It, it is, you know, I used to think it was impossible to sort out uh, how many how many genes we have and what interaction they have. And uh, that's now a problem that's solved. And maybe maybe 20 years from now, someone will get the biome straightened away. Great questions, and when you don't have answers, remember in medicine, we do the best we can with what we've got. We always are looking for new information and new insights, uh, and I think the gut is certainly uh, ripe for, uh, for analysis. But, you know, if you look at regulation theme here, when I talk about regulation and regulation, one of the most important factors that regulates gut activity whether it's tight junctions, letting in antigens from the gut into the circulation, it's all under control of MSH, melanocyte-stimulating hormone. And 98% of patients sickened with a SIRS, whether it's water-damaged buildings or not, are deficient in MSH. So if we're looking at microbiomes, look no further as a place to start than MSH deficiency. Now, there are a few companies that want to make MSH analogs, uh, they cause their own sets of problems that worry me. Does VIP have some effect? Yes, it does. Has it been studied in microbiome? Hardly at all, but it will be. Okay, and um, give me one second here, Dr. Schumacher. Keep an eye on if a 40 comes on, block them too. I just had somebody jump in that was uh, inappropriate comments on here, nothing to do with the show. Anyway, um, Let's, let's stop for just a second. I want to make sure we, we stop and thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, 
the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ Marquee Sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Richie Shoemaker calling in from Pocomoke, Maryland. And Cliff, before I um, move on to the IEP portion of things and remediation portion of things, um, anything that you wanted to jump on or add on to the first half of the show? Um, not at this point, Joe. Okay. Um, first, I, I have a, a question that I got from a listener, um, and, and he was asking about um, other types of environmental issues that may be affecting people, and, and he was his thoughts were on a differential diagnosis, specifically the relationship of electrosmog as an imitator of mold symptoms. Have you looked at electric uh, issues in homes and, and um whether or not those may well be part of this puzzle? I have heard people talk about electromotive force. I've not heard of anybody doing research with electrosmog. Okay. Okay. And we, we have, you know, practitioners out there that, that are, are looking at electrical issues in homes and how they may cause. And I know that people who have uh, multiple chemical sensitivities seem to be more sensitive to um to that type of, of an issue in a home. I'm wondering, how does this all tie into multiple chemical sensitivity? We know from past experience that chemical sensitivity is, is not just confined to chemicals that people breathe. It also applies to foods that people eat. So it's, it's more widespread than just you know cigarette smoke and air fresheners and, and diesel fumes. But trying to find a definition for chemical sensitivity based on objective parameters so far has been impossible. When I have looked at the 500 chemically sensitive people that, that I've personally identified, uh, it's, it's likely that my practice was, was skewed because every single one of those folks was injured first by a water damaged building uh, and, and then their chemical sensitivity developed. Other people that are far more expert than I am in chemical sensitivity says, no, that's not the case. There are other sources as, as well. But I don't have biomarkers. Uh, I know if I smell perfume, for example, 
you know, I get nauseated, I get a headache, and I said, get me out of here. I got a sign in my waiting room that says, I'm allergic to mall smells. I didn't know of a better word to use to get across that I don't want people wearing dog breath perfume when they come in my office, <laughs> or whatever variety they got. But the issue is that I react to some perfumes, but I don't become violently ill. Other folks become violently ill and, and, and become disabled. So there's a huge spectrum there. I would love, now that we've got genomics, now that we've got NeuroQuant, to do a series of investigations so that we could look to see what's what with these folks. You mentioned the symptoms of electrosmog. The problem is that symptoms of these complex illnesses are no different from Lyme to CRS mold to ciguatera, to cyanobacteria, to dinoflagellosomes, they're all the same. So are symptoms the proper objective parameter to use? Well, it's an objective parameter if a medical history is taken by a trained professional, but otherwise symptoms are subjective. So I don't think we can use that. How about the proteomics and visual contrast that I've relied on for 20-some years? Well. They have their limits in, in what's available and what will insurance companies pay for, for example. With genomics, this is, this is like moving in, into the stars. We are seeing new ways to put together data. And the bioinformatics of how do we sort through 500 million different bits of information, you can understand the computing power that's required. Uh, the, the, the number of, of findings we're going to have in the future won't be confined to chemical sensitivity and identifying morbid RNA. I mean, the sky really is the limit. I'm, I want to turn over a little bit to uh, discussion of how people who do this type of work, your, IEP, your indoor environmental professionals, your remediation contractors, um, I mean, you're obviously a medical doctor, so that's not your you know, your main area of study, but I know you do um, work with people and that some of the IEPs at one point were using um, the Army score, and which I think you've, you've now gone away from that particular score and using the Hurts Me Too. I wonder if maybe you could just talk to the listeners a little bit about what you recommend the IEPs do who are investigating these cases, the, these these buildings where people are having symptoms as a result of water damage? It's important to keep in mind almost the, the evolution of understanding of disease mechanisms. You know, when, when people said they were sickened by a building and people said sick building syndrome was, was real, well, there was someone to argue and say no, uh, and there was no definition of what sick building was. And it turns out that as we learned more and more was published about people being sick, and not only did they have symptoms, but they had objective parameters. Then we had the ability to correct the objective parameters. And now, down the road, down the road, we can see the mechanism that they had trouble with executive cognitive function and memory problems and concentration. We found mechanisms to explain the brain injury with objective parameters like NeuroQuant uh, that, that you know, even accepted in federal court, for God's sake. But now that we've got genomics, all of the evolution kind of disappears because this illness is fundamentally a genomic injury. And you can have the forerunners 
of a genomic injury and not have symptoms. So when I say be careful about putting yourself in harm's way, whether it's a patient uh, or an industrial hygienist or an indoor environmental professional, if you go into environments that could possibly hurt you, somebody along the way needs to give you some mechanism to say you're damaged or not. Now, some people will be able to go in these buildings because they, they just don't have the genetic susceptibility, which is a, a different talk, and we've already talked about HLA in the past. But of the people that do have problems, what marker would I require if I am an IEP contractor? I'm going to want to know what my genomics is. And I'm going to want to know, if I start getting symptoms, what's changed in my genomics. Because now that we have a fingerprint of 750 genes that show the injuries that are fairly specific for water-damaged buildings, there's no reason people shouldn't have that access. And now that we know about brain injury related to gene activation, and gene activation is related to exposure to inflammagens, and the inflammagens are in the building, do you want to go into a building and possibly risk brain injury without knowing about it? This, this is going to be a huge deal for insurers. It's going to be a huge deal with employers. Uh, if, if you run a company, it's almost like the fellow that owns a professional football team. The fellow runs into a linebacker 50 times a week for a few years. Look what happens to his brain. Is the owner of the football team going to be responsible for the brain injury of the fullback? Well, I, I think that question is going to be asked and answered before too long. But the other issue is that if we know that going into a snake pit increases your risk of getting bitten by a snake, then some people would say, don't go in the snake pit. But if you're going to go into the snake pit, you ought to know what to do in case you do get bitten. And well, how do you recommend people evaluate these inflammagens in buildings? I mean, is it simple? You know, obviously we do a good thorough visual inspection. I noticed in the paper that I mentioned earlier, you talk about signs of mold, you know, visible mold growth, um, which is a sign of water damage in general and many different types of inflammagens, as we we talked about being you know, potentially in that building. You talked about odors. Um, obviously, you know, musty odor is another great sign. Um, what other, is there any other measurement technique you recommend people use? With so much focus on fungi, there has been less focus on bacteria. Amen. There mm -hmm. has been far less focus on actinomycetes. I think that the media has picked up the idea of toxic mold and black mold and toxic black mold to the exclusion of fragments of fungal cell walls. It is more hazardous to be exposed to a bunch of manans from a fungal cell wall, from where I sit here now, I didn't say this the last few times we've been on the show, than to a mycotoxin itself. Because if the mycotoxin is ingested, there's mechanisms to take away that injury. If people are eating adequate protein, you're not going to get sick from the fungi in your food. You know, there, there, was, a, there was a clue there. And what about, uh, how can we say 
that some sort of, of actinomyces bacterial interaction isn't more important than what the people from Finland showed with actinomyces interacting with stachypletris. Stachy, for some reason, got, got real sexy and got a lot, a lot of attention. But when I hear of the work that Vince Neal is doing in, in Australia with VOCs, and it's just phenomenal amount of time looking at fat-soluble materials that accumulate in fat-soluble organs, and I'm thinking of the brain right now, that stay there for six months. We know that this illness has got genomic effects, and you don't have to be exposed to have genes turned on and not turned off. Because the gene change is independent of exposure once exposure has initiated the series of events. I got a question from from a listener. You know, how do we define that snake pit? How how do we determine which one of those buildings is a snake pit and which one is not? The primitive approaches to measuring air samples is just one example that everything we use to date is primitive. Ermi tried to use qPCR techniques. Uh, and, and a lot of people knew mycologists were critical of ERMI, but it was the first measure that correlated some with human illness, uh, and I think human illness trumps just about everything else. Hurts Me Too is is 10,000 times better than, than ERMI, and it's far less expensive as well. But how does Hurts Me Too tell me about bacteria in a wet building? Exactly. And so if you're going to say bacteria are a problem, based on what data. We need to have the same organized approach to data collection for species of bacteria. For God's sake, the, the, the coagulase-negative staphs are making compounds we now know that have a toxin in them as well. And when you do bacterial assessment of water-damaged buildings, guess what you always find? Coagulase-negative staph. They are just one more source of a ribotoxin that I can't separate which one made me sick, whether it was an endotoxin from a gram-negative rod, whether it's a palytoxin-like compound from a coagneg staph, or whether it's an actinomyces organism, a streptomyces, or whether it's uh, some sort of wallemia. And the problem that you guys face is that because we're right back to the first question of this show, specific causation, which one of these things? How do we define these things? Well, if you don't measure, and the CDC usually does not measure, you'll never know. And I come along and say, you've got to measure what you can afford. And here you're going to have a client, and, and you want to do a VOC test? That's 500 bucks, isn't it, or more? Well, it depends, but it can be, yes. yes. So if you send a specimen off, say, to, to a company in, in, in Pittsburgh, I think is where, where PRISM is, and, you know, I've, I've seen people spending $500. And we also want to know, uh, hurts me, too, on, on three floors. Well, that's another $450. And we want to know actinomyces. And I think that will probably be about 150 bucks a pop. So now we're spending $1,500 and $2,000, and now we want to do bacteria sampling. Where, where do you start? Do you start in water saturation inside of a duct, say 68% AW? Do you go to 80 to 90% AW? Do you go to ventilated areas, non-ventilated areas? We can spend all the client's money on measurements and still not know what's wrong with the patient. I, I agree. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm probably asking the wrong person, what's the solution? That's not your part of, you know, you're, you're not here to, 
to tell people how to do the investigation, I guess. But um, since you treat these issues, I want your opinion. The opinion is that the only measurement that I think that makes a difference is human health effects before and after remediation. Okay. I hear a lot of people saying, well, we'll do an air sample 28 days after we're done. We'll do this 28 days after we're done. What I'm going to do, the only mecha- the only organism that I know that is, it is effective at saying this is safe or not is a person. We've done the repetitive re-exposure protocol a thousand times. We know full well the, 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 the direction and the source of illness symptoms that match the illness parameters called proteomics or the lab findings in visual contrast. What we don't have is the same database with genomics. And we can get that, so we don't have to rely on patients' symptoms. But if I have someone who can can swim in, in endotoxin and actinomycetes and fungi and not get sick, it's quite possible that person doesn't need to have any remediation done. Well, you answered a question that was texted in in a way here. Is it possible for there to be an environment that is both a snake pit to some and a safe environment for others? Exactly. Exactly. And and we've shown that, again, it goes, as best we know, is differential gene activation does have a genetic component. So genomics versus genetics. It's two different ideas, and sometimes people get those confused. But the fact that a snake pit is safe for one person doesn't mean it's safe for the other one. And we use this, this idea of an eggshell patient in, in, our, in our, our surviving mold consensus on, on for IEPs is that the remediator doesn't have a choice. He has got to remediate to make the building safe for the most susceptible and sickest patient. That gets to be controversial as well. How much, it does. It how does. Much, <laughs> how, much money, how much money are you going to spend to make the home into a bubble? That's right. That's right. So how, how can we say that? I mean, I guess we could look at um, if you're looking at the patient as the, the 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 way of evaluating whether the area is back to you know something that they can tolerate. Um, would you look at maybe cleaning in stages? Um, you know, some people go in and they clean it out themselves and they just remove the wet materials and and if they go back in and they're still having trouble, then maybe they go to a second level of cleaning. And if they go back and they're still having trouble, then maybe we go to a third level of cleaning. Does that make sense? No, and the reason it doesn't is that I think we need to stratify what goes on with people who are sickened. And if you don't have sick people, it's it's quite possible you can just stop the, the moisture intrusion and and, 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 and do the, the simple things because, frankly, if you're, there's, the person's not going to react to even uh, massive amounts of stuff, then you don't need to clean up a whole lot. But if you've got a sick patient, you stop water intrusion, remove, do all the things that you have to do for building materials that need to be removed. But somehow, here's what has always bothered me. I've got a house with water intrusion around a chimney that, that never was flashed right. So the living room... Uh, is a problem, and yet air is moving from the living room upstairs to the second floor, and yet what room is contained and isolated is the living room. What does that do to cleaning the rest of the rooms in the house? I don't think that any remediation of, say, a residence should be limited to just one or two rooms. If I am worried about illness, I mean, the stack effect can explain what goes on from a basement coming upstairs. 
Well, same thing from the living room to the second floor from the bad chimney. You know, it, this all it brings up great questions. So one question is, what and where are we remediating? You just said we're going to remediate the whole thing. What are we remediating it of? Or you know, what are we remediating? What what are we removing? And how do we measure it when we're done? Those are tough questions. I don't know that you have the answer, but if you do, let us know. We've got to look, from a medical perspective, at three reservoirs that have bioaerosols and particulates uh, that can be very small. Some will stay aloft forever. So air, uh, and and, and this includes particulates below 0.1 micron, has got to be sterilized. We have to sterilize contents and make sure they are dust and and particulate-free. If that means you throw away the the upholstery on the sofa and recover the sulfur a little later on, then that's 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 what you do. But it's it's the rooms themselves, whether it's walls, floors, and ceilings, all need to be uh, rendered dust free. I don't think that you can say sterilize uh, too often a home because as soon as you open the window, there will be a bacteria in it and a fungus right beside it. But if we have removed dust. And anything that can be removed from the air counts as is, is dust. It just hasn't fallen to the floor yet. Then that's that's where we got to go. So is flow cytometry the way to go with a particular analysis that will let you look down to 0.1 microns? It's actually not a bad idea. Well, and that's something that, you know, we, we've looked at and uh, we'll continue to look at. I, I'm wondering... Um, I'm still kind of stuck on that we have to remediate the whole home every time for each person because, you know, somebody's got to pay for that. Insurance companies don't want to pay for that. Remediation contractors are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They, you know, they've got to make a living. Um, They can't do their work for free. Um, So how do we get the insurance companies to the point where they're willing to pay for that kind of thing or building owners and building managers? Well, remember, that's a political issue more than anything else. Uh, how were insurance companies allowed to exclude water damage from hurricanes? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is it the wind that did it or was it the water that did it? Right, right. We'll, we'll pay for wind. We won't pay for water. I mean, yeah. come on. So th- if we go around the other way and say, how many workplaces are ones that can make people sick. How many schools? Ignoring the ignoring the home. What are we going to have for the societal burden with a with a bad school? Yep. I mean, yep. my 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 favorite hurts me too. Of fifty, a perfect fifty comes from the Medicaid Medicare building on the on the uh, Baltimore Washington Turnpike. Here's where all of the Medicare and Medicaid bills end up being processed in some way, and this particular facility is 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 just as water damaged as can be. If you ever get a Medicare statement back, and I'm old enough to get those now, and mistakes made, I said, "Yeah, was this guy molding?" <laughs> well, Cliff, before we wrap things up, I want to turn it over to you. Do you have any questions or comments? Um, I, I just have I just have one doctor, you know one of you know bef- before the show one of our listeners, uh, you know sent in uh, I guess a case watch consent statement, uh, you know re- regarding a, a legal matter, and I was just wondering if you could comment on it from your perspective. Uh, no, not gonna either. Okay, um, before we go, uh, it's been it's been really 
fun and interesting. I'm not sure my IEPs and my remediation guys out there, um, I'm not sure what we gave them in the end, you know, because it's so tough. Uh, for instance, on the, I had a comment. Um, let's go back up a little bit. Self-reported symptoms can be very misleading depending on how bad, you know, their, their immune system and other issues are as well. So I don't know that we gave them an answer on, you know, we, we looked at maybe self-reporting. Are they feeling better when they get back in there? We looked at, you know, you've looked at hurts me. Um, we've got all these other different ways of measuring. And I, I got to kind of go back to look if we, if we fix the moisture problem, if we get rid of the, the visible, you know, dirt, dust, and debris. Um, if we, Look at, and I like your thoughts on on the air. And if we look at maybe using particle counting as a way of of verifying that the air in the home has been brought back to you know some acceptable level, we'll have to figure out what that level is. That the contents have been dealt with. Um, you know, I think we're giving them some good advice there. I just wondered if there's anything else you wanted to add. If we recognize that remediation essentially at the end of the day as far as health goes is a biological science. I don't think that anyone can ever demand 100% from a biological situation. If you're trying to remove dust, dust is a vibrant living structure, it's added to and removed every day, wind currents along the way. If you have some mechanism that says we vacuumed floors and walls and ceilings, we had an empty room, the particulates all the way down to 0 0.1 microns and less were gone. Uh, that's, you know, and, and the moisture has been, been abated and the entry has been stopped. No one, no one can demand more of you than, than that. But if you don't measure what's going on in the air, then we can say, how do you know? Same thing with a wall cavity. I mean, you, to, to look inside of a wall cavity without drilling a hole in it, that's amazing you can do that. But you can. And if you know that there is the potential for biological disruptions from elements of biological situations, then they need to be looked at and have we have we fixed the biological situation. That's 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 the bottom line. I appreciate you joining us, as always, uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker. It's always fun. I had some great comments already from people. Um, very informative. Always love IQ Radio, all-encompassing voice. I like that. Uh, we always appreciate having you on. Anything you'd like to add before we go? No, I'm just enjoying the ne the next phase. Our, our, our next study is the genomics of brain injury and repair. I cannot wait. We've already gotten started. This is absolutely fascinating. It all started uh, with a little diaphragulate in the Chesapeake Bay and went to a closet full of stacking in 1998. And to now finally get to the ribosome, evolutionarily unchanged. Well, of course we should have looked at things that had lasted forever. Boy, how could we have missed that for 25 years? <laughs> Joe, Joe, one, Joe one, one, one thing. Um, do me a favor, capture your, your chat because I kept getting disconnected and, uh, you know, reconnected, so I missed a lot of it. So if you could capture that and email it to, it, to me, and if you can email me the, uh, the show notes because there's a lot of good information in there that I'll be able to uh, put into the blog, that'll help me. We'll do that. And I also noted a, a, 
question. It's a VOCs. VOCs, we didn't really get enough time to talk as much as I would like on the VOCs issue, but uh, I, we've been following your work for years, and uh, we'll continue to do so and look forward to having you back again in the future. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. See you. Thank you. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, Dr. Richie Shoemaker, to my engineer, John. you got to have faith. we got a mess on our hands this week, but we did it. Um, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and, of course, to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. 